All right, guys. The next uh, five to eight episodes. Well, it's going to be more than that. Eight to ten episodes we're going to do on Israel Keys. One of the stranger cases that I've ever read into or studied on. We don't know a lot about Israel Keys. And this one is kind of backwards. We know who the killer is, but we don't know how many victims are out there. So I want to do this case justice. And I feel like that eight episodes, ten at the most, would get us through it. But listen to this podcast. Listen to these episodes. This is one of the craziest, strangest cases you will ever read or hear about. This is the Weekly Podcast. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Anyway, thanks for listening to another episode of Duh Weekly Podcast. Um, Subscribe, review, ratings, good ones. Uh, Support the show through uh, our show notes through, through Anchor. Anchor is the app we use to produce the podcast. We use a iPhone 6 with an old-fashioned set of headphones with a microphone and one of them stupid-ass things you hang around your neck to put your phone in, but I use it as a stand because hopefully it gets my face the proper distance away from the mic. Uh, Sometimes you hear books, papers, because I like pencils and I like paper. And if you don't like that, I'm sorry, I apologize, please forgive me because you know in life we strive to make everyone happy and you know that we can do that, we can make everybody happy, right? We're just going to be, one day that we're going to look around and the world is going to be a beautiful, peaceful, amazing place where everyone is happy. No one ever gets their fucking feelings hurt and everybody is okay. Because I don't know how you feel, but I can't even turn on the news and watch any of it. I'm just sick to fucking death of all of it. Um... I think that with 300 million people in this country, as spread out as it is, you're never going to make everybody happy most of the time. I believe if we can just somehow get back to the basic old good old golden rule, and I'm not preaching or shoving religion down your throat, but just the good old-fashioned golden rule that, you know what? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And if we done that, we would not have to listen to a bunch of true crime podcasts because there would be no crime. But it's never going to be that way. We live in a cruel and unusual world. But in the same sense, we live in an amazing, beautiful, just people are amazing, uh, And I think that if we try to find some common ground with somebody, that would be the thing to do. 
to give one little bit of speech on politics, we are too polarized. We are at people are at the end of the spectrum on each end, and maybe try to instead of lashing out at someone you do you disagree with. Let's try to start on the foot of finding common ground. Because I promise you this, as human beings in general, you have more in common with another human being than what you think. Maybe you both can talk about how you sit down when you take a shit, or sit down when you pee. I don't know. Whatever. But, give us a good rating. Give us a good review. Give us some damn money. Uh, whatever you want to do to keep this podcast going. We are full-time podcaster, and we have grown to 100 subscribers. I'm not complaining. I'm very thankful. It takes an act of God, and uh, you have to be entertaining, and apparently so far I'm not. But I don't have a niche. I'm just trying to be myself, and um, hopefully at some point in time, <laughs> that will be appreciated. And if not, so be it. It doesn't matter. I don't care. You know, I like books. I like paper. I like pencils. I like ink pens. Like I said before, I'm old school. Obviously, you know, I can't even read. I cannot stand to read something off of a screen. It drives me nuts. I like to print it off and have it in my hand. So you will hear papers, and yes, I record this at home in a walk-in closet because the clothes around me, I think, help dampen the sound. I may put a picture of it up there. I may not. And you'll hear dogs because, yes, I've got dogs. I love my dogs. Uh, I try to keep them quiet, but sometimes they bark, and they are not in the room with me, but they are loud. I've been reading a book, and so... A lot of my information today is going to come from New York Times bestseller, American Predator. Chilling, propulsive, and uh, unputdownable, says USA Today. This is a book about the hunt for the most meticulous serial killer of the 21st century and is written by Maureen Callahan. And who we are speaking of is Israel Keys. Now, in this instance, we have the killer, but we don't have all the victims. So they know who the killer is, but they have no idea as to how many he killed. You know, it was the great Sherlock Holmes that said, well, I tell you what, it was Sherlock Holmes that said it. But I don't know about you. I'm a diagnosis murder fan. Dick Van Dyke. Um, Victoria Ralph. I love that show. That show brings me comfort. It brings me peace. I know that it's a crime show. But so, something about that show. I can watch the same episode over and over. Which I've watched them all a thousand times. And as Dr. Mark Sloan was solving one of his crimes. He says, when you have eliminated the impossible... Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And that is Sherlock Holmes. But I like to say Dr. Mark Sloan, because I tell you who is a badass too, is by God, uh, homicide detective, sergeant, or a lieutenant, Steve Sloan.
Anyway, enough of that. You know, on the side of a four-lane road, and I'm going to look at it, tell you a, bit, a little bit through this book. Obscured uh, by snowdrifts, five feet high, set a small coffee kiosk. It's bright till paint, vibrant against the asphalt and gray big box stores. You know, drivers, they could, they could pass by and just peeking above the piles of snow. It's just a lonely little shack. It's It sits in the background, the big gray, you know, like I said, big box stores. It's just like anything else that you see. One of the coffee kiosks, except this one is in uh, Alaska. 18-year-old um, Samantha Koenig. Of course, she's been working the kiosk alone. Now she had vanished. She'd been on the job for less than a month. She was reported missing the morning of Thursday, February the 2nd, 2012, by the first barista to show up at the coffee kiosk that day. Now I want to say, too, this will be a five... There's Israel Keys is too much to cover in one or two episodes, so I don't know exactly how many to be, but it's probably going to be five, maybe, maybe, maybe more, maybe less, but it's going to be a few. But uh, she was reported missing February 2nd, 2012, by the first barista to show up at the coffee kiosk that day. Um, that barista felt something was not right because Samantha was usually very responsible about closing the kiosk properly. But on this morning, things were out of place, and the previous day's take was gone. Now, what little the Anchorage Police Department had learned about Samantha in, in one day left them with absolutely no leads. She was a popular high school senior. Uh, sometimes she cut class. Maybe she had a history with some drugs. But she got along with everybody, and it just wasn't a cool kid. She got along with everybody. Um, there's two main people in her life, her boyfriend, Dwayne. She'd been dating for about a year, and her uh, father, single father, James. So what what to make of the scene, you know? Uh, Samantha could have been kidnapped, but to investigators in the Anchorage Police Department, it seemed more likely that she had just gone off on her own way. Here's where we get a little sidetracked. Because they don't look at it as a kidnapping. They don't immediately start going through the tape. They don't go through the whole tape. They don't take it seriously. Some people do, but some people don't. Now, the police found no signs of a struggle, but why would there be a struggle if someone has a gun in your face? Uh, inside the kiosk was a panic button. Now, she didn't hit it. I'm not sure why she didn't hit it. Now, she'd been using her cell phone uh, before uh, and after she had gone missing, fighting with Dwayne, texting him to leave her alone. Fighting over her certainly was uh, some accusations of infidelity. Then again, she also called her dad, asking him to stop by and bring some dinner. This was before. Now, why would she do that if she was planning to run away? Now, to the sergeant of the Anchorage Police Department, this seemed like a good test run for a field training a novice. You know, let's take your daughter's life and field train a novice because this would be a great time because I don't give a shit. Um, he decided to give the, the, the case to Detective Monique Dahl. Mrs. Dahl, D-O-L-L, third-generation cop, 35 years old, working her first day in homicide. Dahl had spent 10 years in narcotics for them undercover at the DEA. She had a long, decent career. Dahl stood out, too, as one of the most glamorous officers in Anchorage. 
She looked like her name, blonde and beautiful. Though she had answered to the nickname Mickey, she was married to another star at Anchorage Police Department, the handsome Justin Dahl. They were something of a local power couple, which is probably part of their problem. To start, uh, so the sergeant told Dahl, basically, you're head of this. Suspicious, suspicious circumstances, he called it. Just suspicious. Now, across town, FBI Special Agent Steve Payne was tying up a drug case uh, when a friend at the police department called, basically. This is common practice in Anchorage, a big city that runs like a small town. Cops, FBI agents, defense lawyers, prosecutors, judges, everyone knows everyone. Um, it is the, basically the paradox of being in Alaska. Uh, the state is home to rugged individuals who nonetheless know there will come a time, amid the cold, uh, they'll need help. Now, Payne was uh, was told that an 18-year-old girl had disappeared early the night before and had sent, had sent some angry texts to her boyfriend. One emergent theory had Samantha stealing the day's take to fund a day or two off on her own. It happened in Anchorage all the time. Uh, Payne wasn't so sure. Uh, planning to disappear requires long-range strategy and sophistication. Uh, to him, Samantha seemed like a young girl with very little money and, of course, Payne, he was a regular at these roadside coffee kiosks and could only guess what the barista was paid. Um, they often worked alone, uh, were married to marry bikinis in the summer. It was not an easy life. Um, and really, besides as Payne was thinking, which makes sense, is he, if he was sitting down and thinking like a true investigator should think, where would a teenage girl go by herself on a dark and freezing Wednesday night? The weather had been brutal. It's over 30 degrees, snow covering the ground. Samantha didn't have her pickup truck that night. Her boyfriend, uh, Dwayne, did. And Anchorage sure as fuck it in a walkable city, excuse my language. Samantha just wandering off alone on foot made no sense. If she'd gone to a friend's house as she had told Dwayne in her text last night, chances were the police would have already found her. So he offered his help. Mr. Payne, FBI agent. Oh, we've got enough people, came the reply. We think we know what this is. That's the shit that irritates me beyond belief. Just follow the evidence. Find the truth. Just find the truth. Gee, I mean, just whatever the truth is, it is. And if your assumptions are wrong, don't let your ego get in the way. Open your mind. Follow the evidence. Follow the truth. That's all that matters at the end is people just want the truth. So Payne had hung up, and it didn't sit right because he knew the first rule of any investigation was to keep an open mind. You didn't try to fit a personal theory to a possible crime because I assure you can make evidence fit whatever theory you want most of the time. He even heard, he'd heard that the police had not even taped the kiosk off earlier that morning when she was reported missing. Her, her fellow barista then spent the morning serving customers. If this kiosk was in fact a crime scene, and come to find out it, already, it was, it had already been contaminated. So there were many, many mistakes made in the beginning. And these are the, same, these are the mistakes that Israel Keys was counting on happening, and he was counting on them to continue to happen, but we know things changed. It was just unbelievable to pain, a seasoned FBI agent. Um, it's just basic stuff, knowing that 
first hours of any investigation are everything. Presenting that they have the freshest, you know, obviously presenting as they do the freshest leads, the most telling witness interviews. Crucially, investigators themselves are at their most curious and engaged. Confronting a brand new mystery with a brand new set of players, this sets the tone for everything to come. With missing people, especially a child, and yes, Payne considered Samantha a child, these earliest moments, handled correctly, will give investigators the best chance of finding them alive and well. Percy didn't want to overstep. He couldn't help himself. He called APD, leaving messages and waiting all afternoon for a reply. Finally, at 8 o'clock that night, his phone rang. It was Detective Dahl. Some things have changed, she said. So Payne drove 12 minutes to the F from the FBI Anchorage field office over to APD. He'd been with the Bureau 16 years, born and raised in Anchorage, which I think that gives him an advantage. Because most people are implants from the lower 48. He understood the psyche of the city. He understood the bias police could have when it comes to Anchorage poor and troubled, the lost causes. And he didn't want to see Samantha dismissed. So, Dahl gave Payne a quick overview of what she had learned. Basically, they had finally gotten a look at the surveillance video from the kiosk, which the kiosk owner, he was nearly 2,500 miles away. They had obtained eight hours earlier. And this was shaping up to be what Payne had feared. The low prioritizing of an at-risk teenager. Poor Samantha's father had spent the whole night calling her phone, Samantha's phone to no avail. Spent the next day standing outside the kiosk during his daughter's next scheduled shift from 1 to 8, hoping she'd come back. So Payne watches the video. And on that video, what does he see? Just before 8 o'clock, Samantha appears on screen in her lime green top, her long brown hair worn down. She is relaxed, chatting with a customer through the kiosk window as she makes coffee. Sweet girl, happy. Whoever is outside remains out of camera range. Samantha works very casually, and then two minutes and six seconds into the tape, she suddenly turns off the lights. There's no audio. Samantha's hands go up. Now, all that's visible outside the kiosk is a shadowy figure and what might be the muzzle of a gun pointed at Samantha through the window. The aim is high, and the window is low to the ground. So whoever this man is must be tall or woman. Samantha moves gingerly to the counter, her back to the figure outside. She gets on her knees. She stays that way for over a minute, fidgeting. And then, three and a half minutes in, she gets up, walks over to the refrigerator, and scoops out money from the door. The video is so grainy it's hard to tell if she hands it over or puts it down. She returns, calmly it seems, to a kneeling position. Then something else has clearly been said because Samantha wobbles to the window, stop, stops and turns her back to it. Here, at 5 minutes and 19 seconds into the video, a large male figure leans halfway inside. It's hard to see for sure, but it looks like he's tying her arms behind her back. Two more minutes elapse, which sounds like nothing until you realize that a man with a gun 
is outside a very popular kiosk that sits between the parking lot of a huge gym and a well-trafficked road. In this context, two minutes is a lifetime. Whoever this is, Payne thinks either knows what he's doing or knows Samantha. This kiosk is tiny, maybe nine feet by five feet, barely propped up off the ground. The wide-open serving window makes these young girls extremely vulnerable. Vulnerable. Seconds later, Payne watches as the man pounces like a cheetah, pushing his way through the window in one swift movement, stomach arcing inward, arms extending, landing gracefully on Samantha's right. It just happened so fast. Now it's clear. The man is very tall. He is also very composed. He looks out the window, seems to shut it, and talks to Samantha. Things seem fairly normal between them. He picks something up and opens it, showing it to Samantha. Looks like her purse, and it looks like it's empty. Now, at 8.55, he is kneeling. His broad back is to the camera, his right arm tight around Samantha. There is white lettering visible on the back of his black hoodie, but it is impossible to read. He is so close to Samantha that they look like one melded figure. He helps her to her feet. Samantha and the man hesitate, look back, and then find themselves facing another surveillance camera. He moves Samantha straight ahead through the kiosk small door, and the outdoor footage shows her and the man slowly walking away, his arm around her shoulder, through the fresh white snow. And Payne didn't know what to think. Once again, he offered the FBI's assistance, but Dahl declined. This might have been her first day, and that was the problem. Ego gets in the way. Also, APD was Jeff Bell. 17 years in law enforcement. U.S. Marshals, Federal Task Force, SWAT, Senior Patrol Officer. Three years with FBI Safe Street Task Force, which gave him top secret clearance with the Bureau. Bell would be considered the most naturally gifted of the team. A clinical, logical thinker with the charisma to engage the gang members, drug runners, meth addicts, pimps, racists, and murderers who so gamely contributed to Anchorage standing as the most crime-ridden city in Alaska. At APD and the Bureau, Bell was admired by his colleagues. He had the forthrightness and friendliness so common to his native Midwest. He wound up in Alaska following his college sweetheart. So you've got Bell, you've got Dahl with the APD, you've got Payne with the FBI. Now Bell didn't, he didn't understand the video either. Yes, Samantha put her hands up and yes, the figure looked like a man, but what was really happening? It was too dark to really see. Why was the conversation taking so long? Bell timed the activity in the video. The, this man had been outside the kiosk for at least seven minutes and clearly inside for over ten. Seventeen minutes total. What in the world were they talking about? Now this seventeen minutes led to the department's first working the theory Samantha was likely not a victim. They weren't going to tell the press that, but their response made that clear because last, um, APD didn't plan to go public with Samantha's disappearance. They took another two days. Now the department's hands was forced to 
by Samantha's frantic father. See, I think that's such bullshit. Such bullshit. Poor James Koenig was standing outside Common Grounds Kiosk on Friday afternoon. His daughter was now missing almost 48 hours. And it's only shock you'll feel as a parent. I don't know it, and I don't want to know it. The sheer inability to believe that your child is somehow, suddenly, nowhere to be found. How is this thing possible? James is a burly, blue-eyed man who known who was known as Sonny to most. He was a trucker, knew his way around Anchorage, senior side to bars, strip clubs, biker gangs. He was rumored to be in the drug trade. Uh, he was a bad dude. But he, there's nothing, there's nothing he wouldn't do for Samantha. He was an amazing father. He loved his child. And he deserved for the Anchorage Police Department to do everything they could to find his child. Now, James, he he done what every father would do. But without James, I don't think that they would have pushed on forward. The only thing he could do was, was galvanize Anchorage to, to search for his daughter. He handed out flyers with her photo, kidnapped in big red font above her name below. Volunteers kept coming, hugging James, taking piles of flyers. James would talk all day to reporters. He says, I called her cell phone until the battery finally died, and I texted it, and everything he said. It would, it would ring until it just went to voicemail, and then at noon yesterday, it just went straight to voicemail. James was convinced that this was proof Samantha had been taken. He and Samantha texted and talked multiple times a day, but police weren't so sure, because people go missing in Alaska all the time especially with Israel Keys around. Well, to the Anchorage Police Department, sometimes they just wandered off. Sometimes they get lost on the dark trailhead or freeze in a snowbank. Sometimes they're found in time. Sometimes they're not. Just whatever. Mother Nature will humble you. That's what most people in Alaska feel, and it's true. Sometimes it's not Mother Nature. Sometimes it's not what you think. Now, if they had to watch, well, I won't get into that yet. This is the place first inhabited by our ancestors more than 11,000 years ago. And it was hardly more developed when Russia sold it to America in 1867 for two cents an acre. Yet Alaska remains the great land. Now, Alaska's a little different what we're used to. You know, in summer... Alaska and Anchorage, in particular, become the brightest place on the planet. A theme park for vacationing families engaged in outdoor activity through 22 hours of pure sunlight. But when the winter descends and tourists depart, the masks come off, and Anchorage's true nature, her uncivilized self, is revealed. Darkness and depravity compete with the collective hunger for light and life, basically. You get 22 hours of darkness. You would feel like you fell off the face of the earth and feel isolated. I guarantee it. Especially, they state it's a rough place to be a woman. Now, it's Saturday. 
and APD needed to basically play catch up. So, what do they do? Yeah, they needed to find Samantha, but they also needed to calm the public. The story had gone national. Thank you. I'm glad it did. Now, Lieutenant Dave Parker, out of naivety or de desperation, was far too open with the media. They left on foot, we know that much, he said, but beyond that, her disappearance has become a complete mystery. This, ain't, this only amplified the community's worry. Samantha's disappearance spoke to the specific fear of any parent of a young girl here who is working alone, in the dark, in a heavily populated place. Samantha could have been anyone's child. Indeed, public pressure forced APD to show parts of the surveillance video to the press. Again, all police could say was that the suspect was wearing a dark hoodie, maybe a baseball cap, and was significantly taller than Samantha, who stood just five foot five. Anyone could be a suspect, one detective said, and that included James, the father, and Dwayne, the boyfriend. Now, Miss uh, Detective Dahl had interrogated both. James and Dwayne. Now, she interrogated both men separately at the station on Thursday. And this was within hours of Samantha going missing. So, now Dahl, basically she states that her original assessment of James, which is Samantha's father, was of a straightforward man. In her police report on the honesty scale of 1 to 10, she wrote 10, brutally honest. Yet, she was still puzzled by what James and Dwayne told her. Dwayne said, the boyfriend, to Samantha Koenig, Dwayne said he drove over to Common Grounds in the pickup truck he and Samantha shared at about 8.30 that night. He had been running a little bit behind at his own job, maybe 10 minutes. Now, Dwayne says as he pulled up, he noticed the kiosk inside lights were off. The whole stand was covered in darkness. So he gets out of the truck, he looked in one of the windows, Samantha wasn't there. Everything was closed. This is what he told Detective Dahl. He noticed that napkins strewn on the floor and towels sitting on the countertop, which he found weird because Samantha was a neat freak. And that was also said by the opening um, worker at the coffee kiosk. So why didn't Dwayne go inside? Probably because why anybody wouldn't go inside. He didn't want to trigger alarm or be accused of breaking in. I mean, if it's closed up, he figured Samantha got a ride with someone else. Of course, Dahl wants proof of Dwayne's timeline. Now, I have no issues. They have to rule out James and Dwayne. I just don't think they do quick enough, and that's the problem. But they need to do it. They need to talk to them. They need to investigate them. They have to. They have to. Now, she wanted proof of Dwayne's timeline. So he tried. He scrolled through text messages to try to prove his story, but claimed clear that he and Samantha were having problems. But Dwayne insisted it was going well. Things had been rocky, but they were past it. They were past that. Now, what they didn't realize is some of the texts that were being sent were not from Samantha after she was kidnapped. It was They were sent from her kidnapper, which was Israel Keys. 
But Doll didn't think so because by, she knows it all. She told him to scroll further back through his text, and there it was. Okay. Dwayne had been caught flirting with other girls. Sam knew about that. She hated it. And, you know, he knew detectives could subpoena his phone. He might as well admit it. He called her while she was working. And when she couldn't talk, he said, whatever, and hung up. He had to admit it. He had to admit it. It was probably eating him alive. That probably one of the last conversations he had with her, or maybe the last. He was angry with her. Now, Dwayne gets the text from Samantha at 11.30 that night. We know it's not um, Samantha. Or she was forced. F you, asshole. I know what you did, and I'm going to spend a couple of days with friends. Need time to think. Plan acting weird. Let my dad know. Acting weird? Who was acting weird? What had Dwayne done? Doll wanted to know. How had he been acting weird? Was Dwayne cheating on Samantha? She confronted him when he came to pick her up. He lost his temper, gone further than he planned, did something by accident. Absolutely not. I didn't do this. So she wants to know more, doll. Ask Dwayne, what happened next? Dwayne said he went home to James. Koenig, Samantha's father, waited up, hoping Samantha would come home. I think that's pretty normal. Around 3 in the morning, he suddenly felt the need to open the front door and go outside. Now, that's a little strange. Why, doll ask? Dwayne couldn't explain it. But he saw a man with a mask about six feet away going through his and Samantha's pickup truck. They each stood there for a moment, staring at each other. And then the man closed the door and walked away. That would be the strangest thing ever. To walk outside, be six foot away from the man that kidnapped your fiancé, girlfriend. He's rummaging through your all's truck. You're six feet from him. You're six feet from me, but he doesn't know who this man is. Could be just a man going through the neighborhood breaking into vehicles. But you're six feet away. What do you do? What do you do? Well, so, what did you do? She asked Dwayne. Said he walks back inside and tells James. Said about an hour later, Dwayne searched the truck and realized Samantha's driver's license, which she always kept tucked in her visor pocket, was missing. Then he went back in the house and went to sleep. He didn't wake up until about 9.30 the next morning. Now, I do understand her suspicions on that. That's strange to me. But you don't know how you're going to act in a situation like that. His mind is not going directly to something is wrong. His mind is that she's mad at him. She's at her friend's. She's not going to come around. Maybe she sent somebody to get her license because she needs it. Maybe she needs it to drive or whatever she's doing. Either way, it's not. it wouldn't be uncommon for him to just not be totally in freak-out mode just yet. But Doll, in her mind, she's these are suspects, so it's strange actions to her. Samantha had been missing by now about seven hours. She had texted him and explained how she was upset. Now, conveniently, a few hours later, a strange masked man shows up at their house. He somehow knows where Samantha lives, which vehicle is hers, finds it among all the other parked cars on a dark street, knows exactly where her license is, and takes it. And neither James nor Dwayne calls the police 
or thought to follow or chase this man down the street as he walked away. Really? And I understand that. I say that. Really? If Dwayne and James were so worried, why didn't they call the police? Why didn't they call the cops? Why did they never report Samantha missing? And Dwayne had a simple answer. He didn't think police would do anything until Samantha had been missing for 24 hours. And they thought it was interesting that that was the same thing that James Coning had told Dahl in his interview immediately before. They're not, I mean, yes, it's just hard to say what you would do in that situation. It was out of character for her to do what she'd done by not showing up or at least texting. Which, And in their mind, I think that maybe they're thinking she did text and let us know. But we've got to wait 24 hours. And they didn't understand that the man was there to specifically get the driver's license till later on. But I think their senses should have been a little more heightened than just going back in there and going to bed. So what happens next? You know what happens next. Later the night, Dahl sends two officers armed and unannounced to James and Dwayne's house wants to catch him off guard. Element of surprise because we know James and Dwayne are involved somehow. It's what the Anchorage Police Department thinks. Dahl had some more questions. But a real motive was, like I said, to get a feeling of how these two would react when caught off guard. Now, they don't do anything better for themselves here. Um... Basically, when James came to the door, the officer said that he wouldn't let him in. Instead, he wedged his way through the door frame, stood outside, shut the door behind him firmly. When they wanted to talk to Dwayne, James went back in, shimmied in real tight, and Dwayne entered and exited the same way, too. Were these the actions of a frantic father and boyfriend? You insist your daughter's been kidnapped, but you won't let the police in your house? Officer Jeff Bell was tasked with surveilling James Coney around the clock. So James is now a suspect, Samantha's father. Yeah, he, there are probably actions of a man that might be breaking the law, but not a law of kidnapping or murdering his daughter, maybe a law of marijuana charges or something like that. And you've made him feel that way over the years, I'm sure. Why the fuck would he want to get arrested for marijuana? Because you know that's what you do. So days go by. I mean, really, could James have really done this? We know he didn't. But why was the Anchorage Police Department giving him such a hard time? I mean, everybody thought he was a, an honest man who truly loved his daughter. But still, they wondered. They didn't want to tip their hand. It didn't matter. James wasn't stupid. He knew he was the prime suspect. He knew he had to push the department to look elsewhere. And that's sad that he had to push or feel that he had to push the department to look elsewhere. He encouraged Samantha's friends to go to the media. And he also talked to the media every chance he got. Uh, she was explained, Samantha was explained by her friends as a beautiful girl, didn't know she was beautiful. Um, and they, all of them said they wouldn't, that she wouldn't let her dad anguish like this. Now, February the 11th, hundreds of people gathered for a candlelight vigil in Town Square Park. Um, what... Now, by this time, the, the case has gained national attention. Um, he, had, he had handed out flyers with kidnapped. He, he had had his, her friends go to uh, media outlets anytime they could. Um, they had pictures. 
everybody had pictures of Samantha pinned to ribbons and uh, lime green to flat, the shirt. Uh, at this gathering, James was at the gathering on February 11th. Uh, he had Samantha's pit bull, uh, Sheba. Now, as this is going on, Steve Payne, the FBI agent that wasn't invited in, um, was frustrated, and so he should be. Even though the Anchorage Police Department had brought the FBI in three days ago, thank God, Samantha's father had done more than the entire Anchorage Police Department. Samantha's father had set up a tip line and a volunteer site right next to the coffee kiosk. He also had a huge place card made up, his daughter's face nearly five feet high and propped up against the roadside shack, kidnapped, printed in huge black letters. He was asking cross-country skiers to search for his daughter along trails. Friends and strangers scrawled messages of hope on the snow in neon green spray paint. It was impossible to live here and not know who Samantha was by now. Rather than losing interest in a missing girl way up in Alaska, the national news media became even more intrigued. Producers from Nancy Grace wanted to interview James. ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, and Fox News all aired the story. Facebook messages were coming in from as far as New Zealand. Payne, meanwhile, was basically laser-focused on facts. He had the agents contract, uh, contact all the airlines looking for evidence that Samantha had left the state. Nothing. How about boats, cruise ships, any record of her on a manifest or as a fast hire? Nothing. Payne had agents run the names and photos of more than two dozen friends and acquaintances Sam resembled in case she'd faked her passport and used one of theirs. Nothing. Samantha's cell phone hadn't been used since the night of her disappearance, the night she disappeared. It was still turned off. Could she have fled in a car? There were only three main highways out of Anchorage, but none had any real surveillance cameras. Now, to Payne, he had never seen a case like this. Zero physical evidence. Nothing to indicate Samantha had been abducted. Yet here we, we were with an 18-year-old girl, her face all over the news, a city of 300,000 people looking for her with no money, and even if she had stolen from the register... That was maybe $200 at best. No proof she'd even left town. If Samantha wasn't abducted, but also hadn't run away, what was the answer? What were they missing? Jeff Bell thought the same thing. He was now toggling between the FBI and APD, feeding information to Payne while helping Dahl. Bell's role was as much therapeutic as investigative. Payne disliked Dahl, who he thought was way too confident for a rookie, and Dahl likely resented Payne for bigfooting her first missing person case. But for his part, Bell wasn't as convinced as Dahl that James was involved, but nor was he as convinced as Payne that Samantha had been taken. In fact, Bell was beginning to think Samantha had set the whole thing up. So you've got one Anchorage Police Department detective that thinks the father's involved. You've got an FBI agent thinks that she was kidnapped. And you've got the other detective thinks that maybe Samantha had set it up. So you've got three people thinking three different things. 
Now, this level of media attention alone would make it impossible for Samantha to hide in Anchorage. And the search of Dwayne's truck turned up nothing. The only logical explanation was that Samantha staged the abduction and the man in the video was her accomplice. The SAU was called in. Vice was called in. Police arrested about 50 people, confidential informants mainly, and asked what they'd heard about Samantha Koenig. A lot, it turned out. Well, detectives were told that Russia Mafia was involved as payback for something James had done. Or the Hells Angels made the, for some, made the same reason. Same reason that the Hells Angels were coming after her. Samantha had been uh, dealing. Did the cops know? Samantha or someone heard that her brag she'd been doing licks, stealing from suppliers. Others heard she had owed drug money, was being held for ransom. Woman came forward claiming uh, uh, people close to Samantha knew he were heavily into math. These people also alleged that Samantha stole $5,000 from James a week before disappearance. Um, uh, February 15th, the word flew that Samantha's body had been found. None of it was true. None of it. It wasn't true. But it was an indicator of how out of control this investigation was. The FBI, the APD, needed to contain the panic and find Samantha. But Bell knew the truth. The truth is this was a small department. Only 350 police. They couldn't pay overtime indefinitely. Two weeks in and everyone was burning out. The longer this dragged on, the less likely they'd ever find her. And then they had James Coning, his reward fund now up to $60,000, and his Facebook page generating lead after lead, making investigators look incompetent at best. So I will say this comment and go to break. Past behavior will predict present and future behavior. I think, in this case. It's 7.56 p.m. on February the 24th. That's 22 days after Samantha Koenig went missing. Dwayne gets a jolt. It's a text from Samantha's phone number. She was more than three weeks missing. The text reads, Connor Park, sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? Dwayne and James shared the news with APD and rushed to Connor's park, or uh, Bog Park. This was at Connor's Bog Park. It's a popular trailhead for runners. They beat the APD by about 15 minutes. There, tacked to a bulletin board, under a flyer for a missing dog named Albert, was a Ziploc bag containing a rambling ransom note and black and white Polaroids of Samantha. In one picture, what looked like silver duct tape covered her mouth and chin. She was wearing eyeliner and looking at the camera. Her hair braided. In the surveillance video, Samantha had been wearing her hair down. In the same photo, Samantha's head was held by a man but all that was visible of him was one hand and a muscular arm. In the upper part of the picture was a copy of the Anchorage Daily News date, February 13th, 
2012. Proof of life. The note itself, typed on plain white paper, only added to the mystery. It referenced Dwayne's ATM card, card gone missing with Samantha. I may not use the card much in AK, Anchorage, or Alaska due to small pop, it read. But as I will be leaving soon, I will be using it all over. The note implied Samantha was no longer in Alaska and had been moved through an arid, uh, through an arid state in the lower 48. It reads, she did almost get away twice, once on Tudor Road and once in the desert. Must be losing my touch. The demand, $30,000 deposited into Dwayne and Samantha's account immediately. The note went on to say, uh, if this and other demands were met, Samantha would be freed in six months. The case was now officially kidnapping, a federal crime, thank God. And I think that's what changed everything for this case. Because Payne really worked it. For the first time since Samantha had gone missing, he felt pain. He felt like relief. The case was his now, not APD's. And he could tell James what sounded like a line from a movie, but no less true. We can now bring the full force of the FBI to bear. We don't have to justify anything to anyone. And, of course, Payne felt like he had a good team. Um, he had uh, Jolene Golden. She had, uh, had years of experience working crimes against children, human trafficking, sex crimes, homicide, plus 10 years working with rapists and serial killers. Um, Golden would later say that uh, she had heard the worst of the worst, but yet her spiritual beliefs gave her strength and sympathy. Um she was a master of separating the person from the crime, but never shielded away from brutal truths. She was perfect for this investigation. Then there was Cat Nelson, a young, vibrant investigator who loved facts and numbers. What would bore most to anyone uh, electrified her, sifting through digital footprints. It bored people, but she loved it. Cell phone records, credit card receipts, property records, tax records, organizing re uh, realms of data to create a narrative. She loved this kind of stuff. I love it too. Payne, Golden, and Nelson, along with Dahl and Bell, were a small group on the verge of a very, very, very big case. Now, Payne had already had traces on cell phones belonging to Samantha, James, and Dwayne. And when the ransom text had been sent from Samantha's phone to Dwayne's, Nelson watched it in real time. It had taken three weeks, but now there was a connection, connective tissue. However thin, among investigators, Samantha, and whoever else was involved, it was just thin, but they were holding on. Payne made sure every investigator had eyes on the ransom note. He sent the original to FBI headquarters in Quantico for processing fibers, fingerprints, and DNA. Payne wanted to know how the note and the photo were made. What typewriter, if it was in fact a typewriter, not a computer. What kind of ribbon, ink, printer. No detail was too small. He called in the FBI story BAU, despite Bell's skepticism. See, anyway... What Bell knew of BAU came from TV and the movies. He pictured clean-cut paper pushers who sat in headquarters thousands of miles away from a crime scene with a superior death-side air that somehow resulted in a detailed bang-on profile of an unknown suspect. I love the BAU, and John Douglas is the man. Like many of his fellow investigators, Bell thought these profilers were a notch above psychics, which I think is bullshit. If you notice... The investigators from the Anchorage Police Department 
We're all skeptical. They're all this. They're all that. They didn't do their job. Um, you know, their predictions of violent offenders are almost always the same. This is, I'm trying to be sarcastic in my tone. Your suspect will be a young man, probably white, with low-level job, difficulty maintaining relationships, lots of anger issues, especially toward women. Whatever. But the one question that loomed over the room in these Polaroids was Samantha alive or dead? I wasn't sure. Payne, Gold, and Nelson all thought she was alive. Bell thought she was dead. But Payne argued Samantha had no cuts or bruises. She was wearing makeup. Her armpits were shaved. Her hair had been braided. Her skin looked healthy. Holding her head up like that might be for shock value. A B, the BAU brought in an expert in snuff films. The expert had no idea. The ransom note was riddled with misspellings. What was the... Was it intentional? Oh, it had to be, surely. Whoever was behind this was obviously smart. Then again, why leave the note beside a main roadway and a popular hiking trail and risk getting caught? Why ask for $30,000? Everyone knew the reward fund was up to 70000 James had made sure of that. Something else struck Payne as odd. The note made no reference to anything specific about Samantha. Not even rumors on the street. There was no mention of drugs or drug debt. No reference to any of her friends, former or current. Nothing to indicate this person knew the first thing about Samantha. But Payne reminded himself stranger abductions are so rare. Maybe this was an attempt at misguiding the investigations. One detail they agreed not to make public was the author's promise to return Samantha in six months. Nobody on the team had ever heard of something like that, and none of them believed it. Now they had to respond. They had to respond to the note, and everyone on the team agreed James had to put money in that bank account. But what, what should they say? This was a, another instance when Payne thought the BAU would be the best help. What response was most likely to lure the abductor out? Now, someone on the task force, the FBI task force, suggested just canceling Dwayne and Samantha's ATM card, depositing the cash, and then having James text Samantha's cell to ask for face-to-face -face meet money exchange for Samantha. Of course, this stopped Payne right in his tracks. This was the worst idea he'd ever heard. And I'm not an FBI agent either, and I think that's the worst idea I've ever heard. You want to keep that line of communication open. So he listened in astonishment as the investigators began communicating how it might work. No way. No way this would happen. No way this would work. The ATM card and Samantha's cell phone were the only links they had to her. Someone who commits this kind of crime is going to put a lot of distance between himself and the scene. Whoever did this was no amateur. Payne struggled with his composure. He had to get his way. He believed that Samantha was still in the state, if not Anchorage itself. With each passing minute, the chances of finding her were only getting worse. Having to fight this nonsense was only putting Samantha Koning's life more in danger. Still, Payne knew he had to play it right. For logic to prevail, he had to become convincing, authoritative. If we sever this tie from Samantha, it's going to be a huge mistake. I don't want that. 
we can recover from this. So here's the suggestion. Keep the ATM card active. Apparently the author of the note was clearly thinking things through. Samantha's 16-digit bank account number was included in the note, showing his bona fides. There was a good chance once that money went into the account, money would come out. Track the ATM card, Payne said. Track whoever has Samantha. Now, Doll, she, she was pretty sure they already knew had the car, who had the card. Because it had already been used on the very night Samantha disappeared. And more than once. Did the FBI want to consider James's odd behavior, not letting police into his house 24 hours after Samantha went missing? James was rumored to be a drug dealer. Detective Dahl had heard James was recently moving more than $60,000 in pot and may have stolen half that. Why continue this charade? Why not see what James would do if they suggested arranging a meeting? Even Bell found Dahl's theory far-fetched. Dahl, he thought, might be a casualty of undercover work. Her years at the DEA resulting in a default focus on drugs. Payne's impulse to keep the card active and deposit the money was the right one. Now the relation was short-lived because, as it turned out, James Coning wasn't so keen on depositing the money. Four days elapsed as investigators tried to convince James, who said he wasn't sure if the note was real. The photos, he argued, might be fakes. In fact, James said this whole thing might be one big hoax to con him out of reward money. Dahl couldn't believe it. She had been sidelined by pain, and now her suspicions were bearing fruit. So, you know, pain put her to the side, wouldn't listen to anything she said, but she had been, she'd had blinders on. She, she, she wasn't looking at the facts. But was her theory right? No, we know it wasn't. Why wouldn't anyone listen to her? Was it because she was the only lead woman in the case? Absolutely not. It was a hard theory to refute. Why would James take his time now? He was still begging for money on Facebook. Why? How did he have the wherewithal less than 48 hours after Samantha's disappearance to go on Facebook and actually post this? Quote, If you would like to donate to the reward fund for the rescue of Samantha, Tesla, Koenig, you can do so by going to any Denali Federal Credit Union and use account number 135006 or I have also set up a PayPal account. Go to paypal.com and enter my email address, all lowercase. All proceeds go to that rescue effort. All proceeds go to the rescue efforts and reward to anyone that can return her home to me safely and unharmed. And Dahl knew that James was spending some of that reward money on himself. The whole city was talking about it. The Anchorage Daily News even asked James about the rumors, which he didn't deny. I'm having to resort to using some of the funds to keep my home running. Which this was just something else Dahl found suspect. And shortly after this odd behavior from James, when you know the investigators stopped by his house, Dahl had obtained a search warrant to, to uh, search the residence and she wasn't surprised to find a grow operation. That's what he was hiding from. 
And is there any decent investigator knows growing marijuana indoors at that level has to be for illegal purposes? Then there was the call from the then, then there was the call to the Anchorage Police Department from a Koenig family friend. She said she'd spent a lot of time with James in the days after Samantha's disappearance, and he was obsessed with money. The reward in particular. Sometimes he'd go online multiple times a day just to track this donations jar. Please check on this, she said, because something isn't right. As it would come to find out, it took five days after the ransom note for James to call the APD. It was now February 29th, 4.55 p.m., and James informed the police that he was, in fact, depositing $5,000 of the reward money into Samantha's account. The FBI, he said, told him not to put the whole 30000 in. The point was to frustrate whoever was making the demand and pushed him to make contact. At the Anchorage Police Department, Detective Joseph Barth was tasked with tracking the bank account Dwayne shared with Samantha. Now, we know that the ATM card had first been used right after Samantha had went missing at 3 a.m. at a local ATM. There had been no withdrawal. Samantha and Dwayne had less than $5 in the account. Now, as Barth, Detective Barth watched, you know, from his desk, James deposited the $5,000 into the account, Samantha and Dwayne's account, and four hours later, he watched amazed as someone tried to withdraw cash at an ATM in Anchorage. Now, Bell had to admit now he was leaning back toward Doll's theory. Only James and Dwayne knew about this plan. How coincidental could it be that Samantha's card was used immediately? Not only that, the attempted withdrawal was for $600. Most ATM limits daily withdrawals to five, 500 Whoever did this didn't have experience electronically accessing this kind of money. Someone who ran on all cash business or whatever. However, thank God, Gordon, Nelson, and even Payne had to concede. Oh, and they were like, is Dahl right? Because less than two hours after that first attempt came another, and this one successful, $500 from an ATM at the Denali Federal Credit Union, a six-minute drive away from the site of the first failed attempt, back-to-back withdrawals at four minutes to midnight. Half an hour later, another withdrawal. This one at an ATM across town at DeBar Road. Which butted up right to thousands of square miles of wilderness. Whoever was using this card knew Anchorage extremely well and was a fast learner. He was now withdrawing money at either one side of midnight, grabbing $1,000 in less than one hour. 500 at two minutes till midnight, 500 at two minutes after. The bank activity itself wasn't surprising. The ransom note demanded money, and now there was money. The ATM at Denali, it turned out, had working surveillance. Though it would take at least a day to even see it. But there was no rush by the FBI or APD at this point to obtain video from the surrounding business. Now, everybody was on Dahl's team. James was now suspect number one. Dahl had been vindicated. The next morning, March the 1st, 
FBI agent Payne and his team found an interesting story in the Anchorage Daily News, which had been covering Samantha's disappearance nonstop. Lieutenant Parker had made yet another ill-advised statement, telling the paper that the investigation was making progress day by day, and Samantha was, in fact, alive. Major unforced error. Because first, Parker had no proof that Samantha was alive. No one did. It was yet another violation of investigative procedure. And, of course, this upset Payne and the FBI. Everyone over at APD was in way over their head. How could a veteran cop make such a mistake? If Samantha was, God forbid, no longer alive, her abductor would know how little information these investigators had. If Parker was wrong and Samantha remains were found, it would make the entire department and FBI look like idiots. And what about James and Dwayne, the rest of Samantha's family and friends? That kind of promise only gives false hope. So Payne, Bell, Gordon, and Nelson were all working 24-hour 24 24 days, and they were all frayed to the point of exhaustion. No one shut off ever. They'd all go home and log on their computers looking for leads. Um, despite their access to top-secret databases, they all relied on Google. You know, it wasn't lost on them. They, they knew that they were investigating like any civilian playing online detective. Poor Samantha Koenig had been missing for 29 days now. And worse than predicted, it took two days to get the surveillance from Denali ATM to the FBI headquarters at Quantico. There they landed on the desk of a young image analyst named Chris Iber. Steve Payne's request came without the proper paperwork, but all Payne had to say was young, kidnapped girl, and everything else was pushed aside. Iber knew that the Bureau sometimes looked the other way. He'd worked the Boston Marathon bombing, so no one waited for paperwork on that either. Chris Iber was one of only six agents at the Bureau who did forensic image analysis. He was also cross-trained in video. He was the best Payne could have hoped for. Iber never shared this knowledge with agents like Payne, but he learned a hard truth. If images wound up with him, they were pretty bad to begin with, and he couldn't make something out of nothing. No matter what web sleuths or the millions of people who watch CSI might think. But Payne wanted Iber to determine what kind of clothing a man in the ATM surveillance video was wearing, a time-consuming task. First, Iber had to confirm the authenticity of the image, that they hadn't been manipulated in any way, then he had to try to enhance the image without distorting it. He had to measure the man's height against the measurements of other objects in the frame, finally to make, make out logos and lettering on the man's jacket. Chris Iber had to do comparison analysis with thousands of fonts. Iber worked well into the night. He could tell by talking to Payne how anxious he was, and, and Payne was really going crazy. Just theories. Back, just that no one knew what to think. At this point, so many signs pointed toward James, but part of him was still believing that it wasn't. Now, Bell saw each passing day as proof Samantha was dead, while Payne, he really needed to believe she was alive. He couldn't trust himself to see clearly, but he didn't know whom to talk to. Everybody was in the weeds at this point. We're talking 30 days missing. Couldn't talk to his girlfriend. She's already upset over his total immersion in the case. Not to his team members, not even Bale. 
He couldn't risk eroding confidence in him at the, as their leader. And FBI agent Payne was leading at this time. So Payne sent out a lifeline. He needed to clear his head. He needed a, a, a different, he needed a, a clear perspective. He needed to joggle it up, erase the board. So he called his best friend and former partner at the Bureau. They worked together 12 years. And Payne really looked up to him, thought of, thought of him as one of the finest investigators he knew. Payne asked him, or he lets him know, like, listen, I'm off in left field here. And, you know, Payne knew his own limitations. He, he, he thrived on order and logic. He had gotten his degree in math, and that didn't help him on cases like this, where 1% of what the FBI does is black and white, and the rest is shades of gray. But here's what we know, Payne says. We have a ransom note. We have a photo. Her skin pigmentation, the way she's posed, she looks like she could possibly be alive. There's no proof she is. But I'm letting my hopes cloud the case. I'm trying to, to be true to the evidence, but we don't have a lot of evidence. Am I doing this right? Am I asking the right question? Am I following the right leads? No. What came out of his partner's mouth? You're not trying to make assumptions. You're doing this right. So the next morning, Chris Iber had good news for uh, FBI agent Payne. He was able to determine, despite the bulky clothes, that the man had an athletic build, bigger frame. His dark jacket was possibly hooded. It looked like there was some light-colored paint spatter on the left chest, and the lettering on the back seemed to read Corpse, Core, C-O-R-P-S. Payne emailed the images to Bell, who saved them on his iPhone. Bell said he thought the suspect was now, or had been, a Marine. But Iber had more. The man was wearing clear or light-colored eyeglasses, a gray face mask, gray gloves, dark pants, and a light or white shoe. Iber apologized. He wished he could do more. But Payne was moved, not by just Iber's findings, but his willingness to work late into the night on a case so far away for a faceless FBI agent asking for help with one of the 2,300 people who go missing in the United States every day. It was a reminder, in this case, that got darker by the hour. There were still good people out there. Fear and anger in Anchorage was surging. Bell could feel it. He knew the community wasn't wrong. They sensed that the Anchorage Police Department wasn't handling this investigation properly. If they only knew. If they only knew what was going on, the things they hadn't told the community. It had taken until February the 20th, three weeks after Samantha's disappearance, for it to occur to the Anchorage Police Department to request surveillance video from the Home Depot across from Samantha's kiosk. Another two days passed before they were able to obtain that footage. The same day the ransom note posted, and it gave to give investigators a beginning to this story. At 7.45 p.m. on February the 1st, a white truck pulled into the Home Depot parking lot. Resolution was fuzzy, 
but Bell could tell by the number of letters on the truck's back that it was a Chevrolet. No other American automaker had that name that long. There was no license plate. The driver sat for 10 minutes, then got out of the truck and walked across Tudor Road, disappearing from view. After nearly 20 minutes, he reemerged across the street at the same crosswalk with Samantha. His arms were around her shoulder. Other people walked by. None seemed concerned. But when the traffic light changed and they all started crossing the street, Samantha broke away and ran. Her wrists were tied together, and it was now clear that she was in a panic, taken against her will. Did she scream? They couldn't tell. Within seconds, the man tackled Samantha, then stood her upright. He seemed to whisper something in her ear and then walked over to the white pickup. He waited with her while a few strangers milled about the car next to his, right next to the truck. People, hands are tied. Nobody pays attention to shit. But this was her chance to just yell help, yell fire, yell help, yell something. They're right there. Here it is, your chance. Do it. Do not let this man take you somewhere else. Do not go to that secondary location. But we already knew how it would go. Payne knew how it would go. Whatever the man said after the first escape attempt had paralyzed Samantha. She stood and waited until the strangers got in their car and drove off, sealing her fate. The man opened his truck door, put Samantha in the passenger seat, Calmly walked around to the driver's side, got in, and pulled out of the lot. How heartbreaking. What else had they missed? With so much time lost, they had to find a white Chevy pickup truck. Oh, no problem. Only the most popular truck in Alaska, huh? Now, the next ATM withdrawal was unexpected in the lower 48. Payne got the call at 10.30 p.m. on March the 7th. Samantha's card had been used just 10 minutes earlier. A $400 withdrawal in Wilcox, Arizona, a tiny town right off the I-10 corridor. It was now more than a month since Samantha had disappeared. This is the Weekly Podcast. 